I kind of liken the economy to a person, you know, you can gain 30 pounds because you're having a baby and it's awesome. You can gain 30 pounds because you ate a lot of pizza. It's not so awesome. And, you know, the economy is the same way, right? The economy can grow in a way that is improving, you know, overall health and well-being and capacity of the whole, including the individuals within the whole. Or it can grow in a way that is, you know, extractive and divisive. And the headline number is the same, but it's not the same implication at all. So this past year, I think for all of us has been a chance both personally and professionally to kind of step back and ask that essential question of why have I been on the path I've been on? Is it enough? Is it enough on all the dimensions that in some cases are newly illuminated to me? And if not, what might make sense from here? We are all investors. We all make choices all the time about our allocation of time, calories, attention. Even our bodies, our behavior and anatomy represent investment in specific strategies for navigating an evolving world. And yet most people treat the world of finance as if it is somehow separate from the rest of life, including people who design the tools of finance or who come up with economic theories Many of the world's problems can be traced back to this fundamental error, and by extension, many of the problems we create for other life forms on this planet. What changes when we take the time to pause and listen and reflect on how the biosphere already works? How do we balance innovation with sustainability or growth with resource distribution? Could a careful study of nature not only lead to better business outcomes, but also help us heal the living world? Welcome to Complexity, the official podcast of the Santa Fe Institute. I'm your host, Michael Garfield, and every other week we'll bring you with us for far-ranging conversations with our worldwide network of rigorous researchers developing new frameworks to explain the deepest mysteries of the universe. This week we talk to SFI's new board chair, Catherine Collins, head of sustainable investing at Putnam, about insights encoded in her book, The Nature of Investing. We discuss how investing has transformed in the 21st century and what new challenges have emerged because of it. The tragedy of value capture, the push and pull between sustainability and efficiency, the consequential differences between risk and uncertainty, problems and mysteries, how multiple timescales interact to produce complexity in the market, balancing growth and development, and what all this means for those who want to do good and not just well with their investments. If you value our research and communication efforts, please subscribe to Complexity Podcast wherever you prefer to listen, rate and review us at Apple Podcasts, and or consider making a donation at santafe.edu slash give. You can find numerous other ways to engage with us at santafe.edu slash engage. Thank you for listening. Catherine Collins, it's a pleasure to have you on Complexity Podcast. Well, thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. So you just became the new board chair at SFI. So welcome. Thank you. And in preparation for this call, you sent me your delightful book, The Nature of Investing, Resilient Investment Strategies Through Biomimicry. We'll link to this in the show notes. This is the product of a nonlinear path that you have traced in your life. I guess as the crow actually flies, rather than as the crow proverbially flies, if you can trace your strange path in and out of and back into the world of investing so that we can anchor this conversation as I know you and I both like to do in the human, the personal and the biographical. Sure, absolutely. Um, for the sake of trackability, let me split things into three major sections. Um, so I had a very long initial chapter right out of college as an investor at Fidelity, one of the largest investment firms. I thought I would be there two years and figure out something about the stock market, learn something useful and move along with my life. And it turned out I love it. I love it so much. And the thing that surprised me is that at least for long-term fundamental investors, uh, if you are a curious person and you just want to learn more and more and more about 
how things are made in the world and how different systems connect with one another and what might be emerging in the future, it is an amazing perch. And so I spent um, 18 years in that first long arc of very traditional investing. So doing thoughtful long-term fundamental research, which basically means you try to find out everything you can about a company or an industry, whatever it is you're investing in. And by having that more complete understanding, hopefully over time, you're making better and better decisions. Um, so I loved that curious element and kind of the open-ended, connected to our world element of investing that I started with. But during that period, a lot of things were developing, some of which were specific to the financial field, but some of which were more universal. We found that uh, like a lot of professions, the more expert you get, the narrower your uh, professional field or scope tends to be over time. And uh, I wanted my scope to be broadening and not narrowing in this specialized way. So there was a little bit of a push and a pull there. And then the second element that was a challenge is I had been interested in sustainability issues or what we now would call sustainability issues really all through my life, doing a lot of transdisciplinary kind of research all through my time in college and uh, really all through my investment career as well. But increasingly, we were finding that there was a little tension there also. The sustainability conversations were happening in one place and the financial conversations were happening in another place. And we weren't yet so great at translating between the two. So my second big chapter was to do a really deep dive to try to get closer to the roots of sustainability. So this is the period during which I wrote the book that you just referenced. I did a master's degree at Harvard Divinity School, studied philosophy. I had my own independent research firm, which I kind of describe as the time to take the things that are in the corner of your whiteboard that you're going to think about someday, but the day never comes. Like I took 10 years to dive into that list of things. And I studied um, biomimicry and, and natural systems during this period with the idea that natural systems are a much better framework for thinking about not just the financial markets, but investing in general in a way that is closer to how the world actually functions as opposed to kind of a factory model. And so now I'm delighted to say this third chapter is my work at Putnam. I'm the first head of sustainable investing at the firm. I've been there four years now. It's combining all of that at long last into one giant role, which is um, intended to connect the dots to make better investment decisions by having this more complete kind of holistic view of what is kind of true cost, true benefit from a company and investment perspective. All right. Well, and that, <laughs> that and here we are. <laughs> Well, you know, I mean, it seems like one of the nuggets of wisdom that comes out of this book is that uh, taking the shortest on-ramp doesn't necessarily get you there in the way that you want. Uh, so <laughs> That's a very gracious interpretation. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And as, as a uh, career ranter, I think I am sympathetic to that. Um, you start this book by talking about three changes that you invite people to undergo with you to rearrange, to reframe, and to refrain. And I would like to start there, if you can, if you want to just provide a little bit of exposition here about what you mean specifically with those three terms. And I think that that'll give us a good launching off point to get into some of the nuance in this book. Yeah, sure. Um, so again, the premise of the book is that the practice of investing, and maybe even more particularly the practice of finance that goes along with it is pretty often seen as a sort of a more mechanized, more transactional set of activities. And there's a role for that transactional element. I don't mean to be dismissive about it. Um, but when you think about the real purpose of investing and the thing that gets me really excited to make this my profession, the idea is that you want to be over time creating something of value in the world, not just trading straws around in the same pile over the longer term. And so the three elements I started with in the book, these ideas of rearrange, reframe, refrain, were an effort to pause before diving right in and really set that bigger context for everything that was to follow. And so of those three, it's interesting, I get by far the most questions on the last one, which is refrain. You know, the idea that you would pause and maybe do less and not do more as sort of a standard objective is not especially intuitive for a lot of folks. And I really got that directly from my biomimicry studies. And I, I think um, had I been trained more formally in science, I would have taken the same thing from that education. The idea that if you really want to understand something, you need to shush and observe 
um, and really trying to do nothing but observe for a pretty extended period of time, not to leap to a theory, not to leap to an explanation, not to leap to a judgment, not to go forward with your ideas about how things should work or could be, but to really pause and take in as much as you can about the facts of a given situation. And from there, uh, start to really do your work and your inquiry. So um, I wanted to start the book with that deep breath and that sort of pause, like, hey, what are we really curious about here? You know, what do we wonder about? What do we want to observe in more depth? And from there, uh, you can get to a really interesting place. So to get to that really interesting place, and we can try and compress this into the span of a podcast episode, but I mean, the fact that you've written an entire book on it that is itself a condensation and synthesis of much, much larger ream of experience and, and research uh, requires a kind of time privilege, right? And as someone who lives in an extremely fast-paced world, you know, and you even mentioned this in the book, that it is difficult for many people who are operating within a particular system of incentives to take the time to even have these thoughts. And so like this is where I want to start to map out the problem with you and then start to identify places where you know biomimicry which is like for our purposes loosely synonymous with complex systems thinking offers us some strategies for starting to untie the knot into which we have tangled all of civilization and the biosphere. So like first is like as part of your reframing you talk about recognizing ourselves as part of nature rather than as set aside from it in some way. And you write about this in some really interesting ways in the book that, at least for me, seem to kind of allude to the time that you took away in divinity school and like this notion of Paul Tillich's ultimate concern, like religion as a notion of ultimate concern, or, you know, the etymological origin of that word as like a, a reconnection, which is a process and a virtue that you come back to again and again in, in this text. And so, you know, I like where you start this book. You say like, we are all investors, you know, like if you're thinking in terms of metabolism and thermodynamics and evolution and the idea that every organism represents a metabolic and developmental investment in a particular strategy for navigating an environment that the information aggregation of evolution has modeled and embodies in these, in these organisms. And that there is a really lovely non-duality here. So that's us as investors. And then that's also our instruments, which are kind of like species of creatures occupying different niches in this system. So yeah, I'd love to hear you riff on, on that a bit and give us some examples of the different kinds of creatures that like, you know, to the extent that we have created in our efforts to control the world, that we have created a new wilderness that exists in this deeply abstracted realm of financial agents it, that, you know, it's kind of this like Lovecraftian thing that we, you know, we're like on the inside of this giant hyper object we call the economy. I'd love to hear you go in there as a skilled taxonomist yes, and talk about some of the different financial instruments and investment strategies and how they look to you as an ecological thinker. Awesome. Okay. So, so one thing that is intriguing to me when I talk to my friends who aren't investment professionals is that they reflect on the whole world of finance and sometimes the whole world of capitalism that goes along with it as you know, sort of this strange and foreign land that I didn't ask to visit and now I'm stuck here and I'm not sure I like it. Um, and one thing that's really interesting to me to observe about my own career is um, th this is my hometown, right? So like, it's not perfect. There are some seedy corners and some neighborhoods I'd rather not live, but it's all very comfortable. You know, like once you're in it, it's pretty fluent. I have friends who are you know pretty senior folks in Washington, and I feel the same way about a lot of things about how government functions. And to them, that's their hometown, right? Like they just get it and can maneuver with kind of fluency and ease. Um, so it is a real gift to be able to observe both from the inside and the outside for a system like this. And you alluded to a really important condition in the midst of your query, which was the idea that we want to be able to analyze and control things. And I do think that a big point of the book and really of 
the whole huge, you know, decade plus body of research that went into it um, is that there is this root of the desire for control that's that's at the heart of a lot of structural and kind of interpretive flaws. Very hard to separate yourself from a system that you're part of, but it's even harder if you want to cling to the idea that you somehow are in charge of it. And so um, this, this is a real challenge for all of us. It's especially challenging, I think, for many folks who have been educated in Western educational settings where you have been taught that, you know, if you want to understand something, the first thing you do is you take it apart. Uh, and then you kind of dissect all the little pieces and you try to understand all the little pieces. And then maybe if you have time, you kind of reassemble them. And as we all know, and as, you know, one of my main motivations for hanging around SFI for so long is, you know, it's not really how a lot of things in the world function. You can't take it apart and put it back together and actually have a complete understanding of things. So this is a challenge within finance, and I'd say within a lot of professional settings, probably within a lot of human settings, the idea that the first thing I want to do is disconnect myself from the system and pretend that it's something over there. Because once it's over there, I can then take it apart and dissect it and put it back together in a very sort of linear and conventionally logical way. It's a lot more interesting, but also a lot harder to put yourself in the middle of that system and try to understand some of the iterative loops. So to give you a kind of tour of some of the things that are um, really easily observable if you're in the middle of investment practice, um, I'll give you a sense maybe with the concept of feedback loops at the heart of it. So, you know, what are the signals that are coming at you every day and how have those changed over time? One really easy and visible signal for all folks, whether you know, in this profession or not, is the simple signal of price. You know, pick a security, any security, pick coin, pick something from the headlines if you want to. Price is a pretty intuitive, easily understood signal. When I started in the profession, which was not that long ago, to get a real-time price on a security, you either had to be very privileged and working in a professional setting that paid a lot of money to get that real-time price, or you had to be patient and wait until it was printed in the paper the next morning, you know, so a whole over night uh, cycle, and then you could check where the security had closed the day before. Um, we often presume that having real-time pricing is automatically this wondrous thing, but why? You know, what function does that serve is my question. And there's a narrow set of applications for which that real-time pricing is helpful or efficient, uh, but that doesn't mean it's more effective. And so the default now, when I log in in the morning, even on my personal devices, let alone um, my work devices, is uh, real-time price on everything. And not only that, it just keeps coming. Unless I proactively turn it off, that is the signal that is literally flashing before my eyes all day, every day. If you're a professional money manager, your relative performance is calculated based on those real-time prices. Now you can hit refresh all day long and just follow the basis points as they come and go. It is mesmerizing, I got to tell you, but it is almost certainly a poor use of time. <laughs> and so that's just one example of this feedback loop that sort of emerged and yet, who decided that? Who opted into it? You know, if you think about the characteristics of a good feedback loop, it's supposed to be relevant information with an effective receptor to take in that information and an appropriate response. Those are the three, you know, essential functional elements. So this is just one example within finance of a very, very loud signal that is almost unavoidable. And yet, what is the receptor to take that in and the appropriate response? And should that be a signal at all is a pretty legitimate question. So I'll pause there. I mean, that's one tiny little microcosm, but it's a pretty vivid example of where a system can kind of go seemingly on its own, even though we know we all have a little bit of influence along the way. Yeah. So this is precisely the kind of ominous Jurassic Park stuff I wanted to get into with you. You know, you give a couple of really interesting examples. One is the three by three Morningstar grid, the assessment tool that allows people to bundle particular investments into different classes and then decide. And you, you tell the story about how your funds were right on the line between these two basically artificially generated categories, 
And you had people saying, well, if it slips over to the other side of the line, I have to sell, I, yep. you know, I have to pull out, which is, you know, related to something that Jessica Flack and Melanie Mitchell touched on in one of their recent articles for Eon about bad metrics, you know, about grading and like how as soon as you try, you know, assessing students for this particular set of, of metrics, then they'll achieve that, but they won't actually achieve real learning. And, you know, you, you quote in here, uh, Robert Kennedy about GDP, which I don't think anyone listening to this show is going to be shocked by a critique of GDP as an insufficient metric of the health of a nation. But you know, just to put this in here, because it's such an elegant statement, the gross national product does not allow for the health of our children, the quality of their education, the joy of their play. It does not include the beauty of our poetry or the strength of our marriages, the intelligence of our public debate, or the integrity of our public officials. And yet, this is another sort of post on the rat king that we have here. And yet, the more we try to measure all of those things, it seems that the more those things, at least in the system as we have it now, become themselves sort of subject to speculation. We found a way to measure them all on the same chart, but that's not the kind of multidimensionality or decentralization that you're talking about. And so there's a tension, it seems to me here, between true cost accounting and a number of other constraints, such as the time that we have to respond to change or mm -hmm. the amount of energetic or computational resources that we have to navigate the complexity. You know, so it's about finding our level. And I'm curious, you know, because you give so many examples in this book that are not quantitative metrics, that are qualitative metrics. You talk about the way that learning biomimicry made you feel. You talk about gross national happiness. Yeah. And so there is this <laughs> paralyzing question in my mind about how we make the decision in our economic models to limit the scope of that which we quantify, not as a way of intentionally maximizing externalities and creating more efficient gains in the short term, but as a way of actually honoring the sort of natural principle of being no more all-seeing than is actually necessary. Oh boy. Yeah, there's there's a lot of layers there. Um, and I have a lot of recent examples here too, you know, so the work of sustainable investing, as I mentioned, is the intention is to broaden all of that back out, right? And to think about, you know, multiple dimensions of health and well-being. And by doing so, you know, to make better long-term decisions. So all investment relevant in the end. It's not an either or premise. But I'll tell you some of the challenges that have come up. Um, it's the exact same challenge, right? It's turtles all the way down, right? This push and pull between wanting things to be both efficient and quantifiable. Those are two things that are deeply comfortable for most of us. Um, we live in a very, very uncertain world. And again, one body of work I've benefited from so much related to SFI and the research there is the distinction between risk and uncertainty, how vital that is and how totally uncomfortable it is to sit in the uncertain part instead of the risky part, right? If something's a risk, it's analyzable and you benefit from doing the analysis, right? So it's an awesome sort of can-do space, right? And most of us presented with a risk or in theological terms, this would be a, a problem. You know, you sit with the problem, you dive right in, you analyze, and after analyzing it, you are in a better place to make a better decision. You might be wrong, but you know, you have improved your odds by analyzing it. Something that is uncertain or a mystery in theological terms is not that, right? It's something where um, it is unanalyzable. The outcome is unknown and the range of possible outcomes is also unknown. So a problem you need to sit with, and that is not fun for any of us. And so the tension that you're pointing to, this idea that every metric we have, regardless of the topic, is a proxy for something else, nine or 10 times out of 10, I would say. And we forget that, right? So we use the metric as if it's sort of a statement of truth as opposed to a clue 
about um, an underlying condition that we're trying to assess. So there's an inherent mismatch at the very root level of almost all metrics that we tend to forget about in part because we're too busy and in part because it's overwhelming to remind ourselves time and time again, like, oh, this metric, it's just a clue. It's not a conclusion. You know, don't ever forget, you know, it's not kind of a statement of capital T truth. Um, and that gets harder the more interesting that you make the metrics. So look at the sustainable investment world, for example. I have fantastic metrics on the gender composition of boards of directors. Why do I have fantastic metrics on that? Because you can count them. You can count the people. Uh, it's, a, it's a finite problem. It's a little bit of legwork to do it, but you can count it and have very high confidence in the integrity of that analysis. Okay, I, I do care about the gender composition of boards. It's ridiculously mismatched compared to any subset of the general population. But why do I care about gender composition of boards? It's because I care about having healthy diversity at the decision-making levels of the organizations in which I'm investing. Well, gender composition of boards is really far from thinking about more multidimensional definitions of diversity. And that in turn is really far from thinking about the inclusion of that diversity, which is where you actually get the benefit of it being there in the first place. But I don't have metrics for those other things. I have metrics on the first thing. So that's what I'm gonna you know, code into my database. And that's what I'm gonna sort on when someone comes and asks us about our process. And for most people who are asking about process, that would be a big check plus on the report card and the folks who are willing and eager to have this more substantial conversation are relatively few. So it's an issue that comes up one situation after another. I'm constantly reminded of a, an early mentor of mine, Leslie Christian, who was a real pioneer in sustainable investing. And she is colleagues with Judy Wicks, who is a pioneer in sustainable business. Judy Wicks had this notion of a beautiful business. So this idea that she would wake up in the morning and she wanted to look around at her business and how it connected with its employees and its suppliers and its community and its customers and see all these pieces coming together and know that this was a beautiful business. And you know they could pay their bills at the end of the day, but that was one of many, many indicators. And Leslie had this idea uh, that she wanted to have a beautiful portfolio, you know, a portfolio where all the numbers were great, all the conventional metrics were great, and also so much more. I've really kept that idea of beautiful portfolio in my mind as we've gone forward into our work at Putnam. Uh, and I'm excited to be in a place, you know, a, literally an organizational place, but also a, a moment in time where there's at least some room to ask that bigger, more essential question but it's uncomfortable and it gets us right back into that kind of trade-off between risk and uncertainty. Like, okay, if your numbers are great, I'll let you ask these more you know, open-ended creative questions. But if your numbers aren't great, I got no time for that, right? And you know, that's fair, I'd say, for where we are in the world right now. Um, but it's a riddle that is not gonna be solved by just adding more and more metrics that are proxies for much deeper, more interesting issues. We have to do that work for sure, but to mistake that for the finish as opposed to the start is a really big problem. And when you have a system that is very focused on efficiency and kind of mechanization of processes, that problem is amplified. Yes. Yeah, so to explore an angle on that, you know, one of the things that in reading your book, I just found myself constantly coming back to this because that particular road is very well trodden in my mind at this point is the, the conversations that I had with Jeffrey West for this show and his uh, sort of <laughs> ringing the bell for the finite time singularity, which just for folks who haven't heard that episode, you know, Jeffrey West is a physicist whose research on biophysical scaling, like the, the scaling of distribution networks in the body, you know, the circulatory and nervous system, et cetera. But then also took that work, he and his collaborators, into a study of cities as social reactors and how cities are this kind of ever accelerating ratcheting social reactor that you know brings people into affiliation with one another and you know works in the way that you identify sort of one of these biomimicry virtues of connecting and finding new diversity in these recombinant relationships. Like you talk about, you know, plant pollinator relationships in the book, you know, with the, the mascot honeybee. The problem that West identifies is that this 
leads to a point at which the problems that we're creating, that we're innovating, not just wonderful new things, but horrible new things, and that the problems that we're creating are coming at us faster and faster. And that, you know, because you've written this book that looks across, you know, the short, the medium and the long term. And I think that that really is, in some respects, a core fluency in complex systems thinking is being able to stretch out to multiple time and space horizons and kind of see them all in relationship to one another. I wanted to like bring up a couple of things that you talk about here. One is high frequency trading and the flash crash of 2010 and like go in however you like into this forest here and hack your way through it for the rest of us, however you see fit. But the fact that there was, you know, high frequency trading has led to a series of crashes that economic forensics still doesn't properly understand given all the time in the world, you know, that we still don't quite know what happened back in 2010. A related problem is that the burden of information absorption on financial analysts is now so great. You mentioned the time it takes just to read reports has just gone through the roof. And so it's getting harder and harder to actually like see the forest for the trees, which is a related to a problem in the hyper-specialization of scientific expertise. And, you know, the way that our credential conferring systems in education are not changing as fast as the landscape itself. So like when you talk about risk and uncertainty, basically my question for you is, it seems as though the world today is far less about risk, far more about uncertainty than it once was. And, you know, so given those mm-hmm. examples, how do you think about this? What are the investment tools that you recognize work working best for a game in which our fundamentals of value are themselves changing? You yeah. know, like, yeah. is the mutual fund a horseshoe crab, you know, like a stable strategy amidst a changing world? <laughs> Or is it like a stegosaurus that, you know, that doesn't survive the proliferation of a a new terrestrial ecosystem? Yeah, um, that's a pretty vivid choice, the horseshoe crab or the stegosaurus. Either way, I wish for something a little more. I don't know what. So a few layers there that are really important. I think um, what you're alluding to within the field of finance and the different product forms and approaches to investing, um, it's the same set of questions that we see, uh, again, in the organizations we're investing in. It's the same diagnosis when I look at a lot of other functions in the world as well. So one thing that has led to the high frequency trading element is, um, again, this idea that we're not always as creative as we think. So what did we do when we got some fancy new toys? We did the same thing we'd always done, but faster and more. There's no real reason for high frequency trading, but there's sort of a opportunity available if you're a little bit faster than the other guy. And so why not go ahead? And that's true in a whole lot of different fields. The idea that the first wave of technology or new tools or development almost always is applied to doing the last thing faster or bigger, but not different. The next wave that comes usually is different. And so we've talked a little bit about some topics that are some days on the glass half empty side of the ledger for me. I think this bridges to the glass half full side, which is where are we now? One thing you can do with lots and lots uh, more speed in data conveyance and processing is to do the same thing you used to do, but faster and faster and faster and bigger and bigger and bigger, which is essentially the Jeffrey West model, but applied to trading, right? And it does exactly what you think. It gets faster and faster and more and more fragile at some point. And, you know, as we all know, it doesn't always resolve itself in a really positive way. Um, But the other path you can take, and this gets to, you know, when you look at Jeffrey's charts and there's the curves that are going up and to the right and they're kind of exponential, but then another curve has to start, right? And that that's the new thing that's starting, which is much more interesting. So we could take those same capabilities and have started to at least in, um, in data recognition and processing and pattern finding and everything else and steer them at either different inputs or different intentions. And that gets really interesting. So when I think about all the different things I could use those same high frequency tools for, what if I could use those high frequency tools to actually assess, um, I don't know, employee well-being at a company that has millions of employees? There's probably a way to do that. We've got a few little clues about new tools that are underway to try to get closer to that. They're 
pretty modest at this point, but you can kind of see the potential there. That would be an additive and interesting and different insight as opposed to just price, 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 faster, faster, faster. So we're starting to see some of those applications. You know, there's some new imagery from satellite technology that gets to a map of real-time methane emissions. So instead of waiting three years for the EPA to catch someone and find someone and then see it reported in the news and then for me to follow up as an investor, you can just look and say, hey, there's a leak here right now. It's in your best interest to stop the leak. You're losing money uh, and you're frying the planet. Let's fix it. So I think when I look at those curves of Jeffries, and we've talked about this many times, when I see the the near vertical part of any one curve, I start to feel awfully anxious. But when I see that new curve starting, that's where there's a lot of potential. And we don't have to do just the same old things faster and faster and more and more desperately. We can choose to do something newer and better. And that's where I see a lot of amazing potential. Well, that brings me into the $64 million question for someone leading Putnam's sustainable investing. You've got a great section in this book on balancing growth and development. And you know, to again, invoke a circulatory system metaphor or a nervous system metaphor for the economy, it seems like a lot of the innovations that have been made in investment and in finance lately are at least at the edges of that, like among retail investors, it's like you already identified uh, real-time prices, but then there's also fee-free trading. And here we are, you know, after GameStop and AMC, and you've got pundits saying, well, you know, that clearly was a bad idea. You mentioned in the book that people are trying to pump the brakes to protect investors and that there's a tension there between access and between you know, risk mitigation, which again has to do with sort of like the surface area of the margin of this thing, you know, much more creativity, much more instability as we, mm. as we increase the surface area of the economy. And so, you know, it would seem that to balance that growth, you need to increase the size of the aorta, uh, which gets to, you know, thinking differently about redistribution and it relates to a conversation that is stretched across episodes recorded with Brian Arthur and with Mark Ritchie of Syracuse University and Melanie Moses and others about what these scaling law models mean. At one point in Ritchie's model, for instance, the system is limited by productivity and then it's limited by distribution, which it seems like a lot, at least in many areas, like food is a good instance where we're wasting a lot of food because we're producing more than we're capable of distributing. You know, you look at the amount of GDP growth over the last 30 years versus wage stagnation, et cetera. That looks like a distribution problem. And when I look at the natural world, it looks like the way that the elder systems we are listening to in this conversation have solved for this is by backing off a little bit, is by making more room that, you know, the the 75% of ants that are doing nothing at any given time in a giant anthill. You know, Brian Arthur's advocacy for a universal basic income. But then there's like the other piece of it, which is you mentioned this in the book that we have to make sure that distribution isn't necessarily like centralization, that we're not just creating Mm -hmm. fragility. And then really the bigger piece of this is your comments about failing gracefully in this book. And you know, it's, it seems the conversation is too simple, too one-dimensional around endless economic growth or total collapse of civilization. And people are promoting a degrowth kind of rhetoric or thinking, but that also seems, you know, limited to these, you know, almost uselessly abstract and oversimplified ideas of value and the kinds of growth that are capable for us. So, you know, you speak a lot about relocalization in this and about the innovation of financial instruments that more closely match the kind of patterns that we see in reality in the non-human world, I should say. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, I'm curious about your thinking about degrowth, about uh, the, you know, economic collapse in what ways economic collapse might be surprisingly good, uh, or at least offer opportunities for other kinds of growth that lead to a more resilient and ultimately beneficial kind of way of practicing economics? Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, well, that that last part of your comment, I think, is key. Um, so a few things that I do just to translate this maybe to daily practice, and then we can loop back to the bigger ideas. Um, because these ideas are on my mind day in and day out, and I think they are really relevant for long-term investors to consider. This is not a separate conversation than deciding what stocks to buy and sell in my mind. This is this is the essential question for deciding what stocks to buy and sell in my mind. Um, one thing we can do as investors, and again, SFI has taught me so much about this, is you know, ask a different question. You know, hopefully ask a better question or maybe a bigger question. And so to be fair, sometimes I get blank stares when I ask these questions, but I've been trying to get a little bit off script, you know, on purpose in our regular conversations with company management teams. So I will ask things, for example, of a company that is essential in this um, accelerating access to creative forms of investing for folks who may not be experienced investors, uh, to ask the question to that group instead of, you know, how much faster can you go? How much freer can you make it? What do you want to slow down? You know, where do you want to insert friction? into your processes? That's a fun question. And it's not one that I think they get as often as the opposite question. To ask a company that is known for you know, steady or significant revenue or cash flow growth over time, instead of saying, you know, hey, is it going to be 12% or 14%? Uh, let's figure it out. To ask the CEO, what dimensions of growth are most important to you? In, in what areas do you want to grow? Um, so just broadening out the discussion, like, okay, it may or may not result in 30% earnings growth, but what do you have to grow within the company in order for anything else good to happen? And pretty often when you ask a question like that, you get answers like, oh, we really need to invest in our people. We have come up short on every possible target we've had for growing the capacity of our own team. And here's why that's harder than we thought. Here are the things we've learned along the way. Here's what's possible if we are able to engage um, people who are really devoted to our mission and you know, well-equipped to see it through. Uh, here's what's not going to be possible if those people aren't the first kind of foundation of our growth. So in some ways, it's just connecting that bigger conversation. It's not instead of the traditional financial conversation, but it's trying to put that in its proper place, which is a pretty small place compared even to one organization, let alone to the broader economy. So I like asking those different questions. I think it gives you a chance again to start with this notion of reframing. You know, what what towards what end is not a bad question to keep coming back to. Um, and if there's not a good answer for that, sooner or later, uh, the problems tend to accelerate in the way that you were describing. So again, to take the invitation that you're constantly making in this book and put things in context, for goodness sake, <laughs> don't trust general advice, right? Trust specific advice. So I'd like to reflect with you on what's going on right now in history, which is, you know, the reopening of much of the economy that has been closed over the last year due to the pandemic. And as you and I were discussing before the call, the way that this last year has, by enforcing a slowdown, by putting the human economy on timeout, has had a lot of people sitting in the corner reflecting on you know what they've done and the systems that they have sort of bought into without a lot of reflection, without time for that reflection. And you know, as is the case with the personal dimensions of illness, where it's like, okay, I can't be productive. I have to sit here and reflect on this. It obviously develop a much more rich and nuanced set of values, or at least acknowledge values that they have that were not necessarily always behind the decisions that they were making. And so like, just as an, you know, one example is that a lot of people just aren't going back to work, that they realize that family is more important or that their sanity is more important. And, you know, this seems related to a piece that Sam Bowles and Wendy Carlin wrote together for Vox EU 
on the COVID-19 narrative. You know, they're arguing that we've been thinking about things in terms of a balance of influence between the government and the markets. This is a very Sam and Wendy kind of statement. So much of human behavior is not motivated by state authority or by material incentives. It's mm-hmm. not it's not about obedience or about pricing and competition. It's about things like on their list, reciprocity, altruism, fairness, sustainability, in-group identity, social norms, the exercise of private power. This is the mesoscopic scale of human organization, of community, of neighborhood organization that made itself so obvious during the pandemic, you know, when mutual aid networks had to sprout up as a matter of necessity. And I'm curious how you see all of this playing out. You know, like I've been tasked by David Krakauer to kind of go around SFI and ask people about the reopening and about Mm -hmm. what people expect from the next year or so. Not what to do per se, but, you know, where the constraints are, how are people going to be seeing things in new ways? What are the meaningful new ways to consider all of this? And so, you know, again, it seems to always come back to, you know, how do we kind of model the unmodelable? (laughs) But I'd love to know your thoughts. Yeah. Yeah. A few things are come into mind. Um, One is that my divinity studies in many ways are by far the most professionally relevant studies I've ever undertaken. Um, I find that perhaps because they are non-traditional skills, at least within the realm of finance, um, they are more valuable than the things that kind of everyone has been trained in and everyone knows. And one of the big arcs of study that I undertook in divinity school was um, study of trauma and resilience and fragility and recovery kind of all bundled together. And a a key lesson from that is that um, when you're in trauma, none of what you just mentioned is possible. It is true survival mode. Um, There is no room for reflection uh, and there shouldn't be, right? You need to kind of get to some level of health in order to have the capacity for reflection. And so the first thing I want to say is that I have been thinking through a lot of the same issues you just described, and that in and of itself is an incredible luxury. Um, So to, again, first kind of step back and put those questions into this bigger setting of the fact that such a huge proportion of humanity is still in that realm of trauma, um, I think is a pretty foundational recognition that can and should inform the direction for folks who are at the stage where reflection is possible uh, and kind of making a different choice. So that's kind of the starting point in the setting. Um, I'm thinking of, you know, after divinity school, I did that big Camino walk across Spain, the way of St. James. Um, So 500 miles, I've never done anything that extended before. And I thought it was going to be this wonderful spiritual epiphany, you know, tiptoeing through the wildflowers for a couple months. Um, But it was hard. It was really, really hard. And sure enough, I found that I was deeply reflective the second day when the weather was perfect and I only had to walk 10 miles and it was pretty flat. Um, But then I got these awful blisters and then I hurt my knee and there was no reflection whatsoever for like the next month. It was just one (laughs) painful step after another. And then by the end, I was well enough that, you know, I could have a little bit of space to kind of consider. So in a tiny, tiny little inconsequential way, there's a lot of metaphor packed into that couple of month journey. So I think of it often when I'm trying to orient myself in the midst of the activities from this last year. But the questions you're asking, I think, are really essential ones, and they link back to what we were just saying about the insufficiency of some of our metrics as proxies for things that are deeper and more nuanced and maybe more complete. So one thing that we don't have great metrics for, either in the economy or in investing or in life, I think, is this question of enough. What is enoughness on any given dimension of life? We kind of can feel it a lot better than we can actually tangibly measure it in most cases. And again, this gets to a root that I think is so essential. You know, we're talking about how endless growth is a challenge and the idea that there should be graceful post-growth models, you know, for all sorts of things is really necessary. We probably need a different term for that because even that term is so alienating. So, you know, growth 2.0 or growth in a different dimension, you know, as opposed to just, I'm going to keep going on the same path forever. But I kind of liken the economy to a person, you know, you can gain 30 pounds because you're having a baby and it's awesome. 
you can gain 30 pounds because you ate a lot of pizza. It's not so awesome. And, you know, the economy is the same way, right? The economy can grow in a way that is improving, you know, overall health and well-being and capacity of the whole, including the individuals within the whole. Or it can grow in a way that is, you know, extractive and divisive. And the headline number is the same, but it's not the same implication at all. Um, so this past year, I think for all of us has been a chance both personally and professionally to kind of step back and ask that essential question of why have I been on the path I've been on? Is it enough? Is it enough on all the dimensions that in some cases are newly illuminated to me? And if not, what might make sense from here? So these are big, big questions. And again, to me, it, it still comes back to this question of risk and uncertainty. You know, the easiest course for many of us is to I mean, there is just a pull back to like whatever used to be that is so strong because it's comfortable and it's knowable. And even if it's deeply flawed, you've been there before. And that is in many cases a lot less daunting than something that might be infinitely better, but is new and not knowable a priori. I mean, it takes some courage to go in that new direction. Ooh, there's a lot in there. Where do I even, let me think about this. Okay. So uh, another conversation that comes up a lot on this show is one that I had with David Krakauer about a year ago this week, probably that we're recording this when uh, we were kind of cutting a conceptual trajectory through some of the SFI researchers contributions to an essay series on coronavirus pandemic. And Bill Miller had written one on high beta investment strategies. Yes. Miguel Fuentes had written one on the fragmentation of social graphs, you know, leading up to revolutions. Archaeologically, historically, we talk about civilizations collapsing, but what they actually do, in the words of Interplanetary Festival contributor Annalie Newitz, is scatter, adapt, and remember. And mm -hmm. so, you know, uh, this was drawing on Tony Egan's work about um, constitutional politics, that it would be great if we could come up with a kind of dynamic constitution that expands its regulatory influence, its top-down influence in times where you know risk mitigation is preferable and then strips down to a fighting trim when it's time to emphasize agility and the ability to dodge the ball from whichever direction. And we may not have the collective wisdom to actually design these kinds of systems, but they do seem like they're designing themselves. That, that, that there's an emergent quality that, that uh, you know, just to put one sort of last glass bead on this glass bead game metaphor string. I remember uh, SFI fellow Albert Cow co-authored some work that was led by UC Santa Barbara on how mass capture fishing is reducing the size of fish schools in the ocean. And there seemed like a real obvious analogy to the exodus from the clear net that's going on that, you know, that people are aware that they're being harvested by predatory surveillance capitalism. And so they're fleeing to platforms like Discord, where they're trying to return to a more human scale. And that that's also echoed in maybe a, a you know, a much more meaningful way in the relocalization of economic behaviors. And, yes. you know, you, t you, you talk about how even when people are locked out of various economic participation as investors in this larger arena, that we're starting to see a proliferation of new options for people to invest at the local level. So yeah, I'm, I'm just curious whether you see a balance in the sort of top-down design of this kind of flexibility, uh, or whether it's all happening so fast that we're in that sort of trauma mode that you talked about, and we're just kind of you know, flinging stuff at the wall and seeing what works, which is not a bad thing, right? That's a Miris Anabilis kind of stay home and there, think about it. There are worse things, yeah. 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 Um, well, there are a few elements that intertwine in your observations there. I think there's a really neat connection between the question of on what level do you want to organize? Like what scope and scale do you want to organize? And the adaptability of whatever it is you're creating. Um, in many cases, at least in the economic and financial world, the greater the scale, the lower the adaptability. I'm not sure if that's true as a universal statement, but it is for most 
corporate organizations. It is for most economies. I would say it is for a lot of governmental institutions and kind of big institutions more generally. So you're trading heft for nimbleness, which is not a bad trade-off, but I think um, you're framing this question as a design question is a really key element. Um, Pretty often the things that were designed to be kind of cool, innovative, small, nimble things can grow quickly enough that they're big, giant, dominant things. And there's a mismatch, right, between the way that they've been designed and the function that they end up performing. So I think of a fairly long list of newer technologies that fall into this category where the technology inherently is actually pretty cool. It's just scaled all out of proportion to the underlying function that it was actually designed to perform. In some ways, there are elements of the economy. There are certainly uh, certain types of trading strategies that have the same issue. You know, something that's really neat when you're doing it with $10 million in your basement is not at all acceptable if you actually end up influencing the entire global financial system. Um, I talk with a lot of entrepreneurs as, as part of my work, and it's one of the most fun parts of the job is particularly talking with folks who are right on the edge of going from being, you know, in that startup phase to being kind of bigger, grown up, potentially public companies. Like that's not an easy or even a welcome transition for a lot of organizations. And so talking to the leaders about, you know, what is it that made you super cool and, you know, potentially disruptive, although it's not my favorite word, uh, when you were starting out. And are those the same things that are going to make you awesome when you're a hundred times bigger? Or are those the things that are going to make you a menace? And boy, to really try to think ahead on that front, especially if you think you're going to grow tenfold this year and tenfold again next year, that's a real skill to have. So I think one of the challenges more broadly is that we often are taking questions or metrics or activities that are best suited at maybe a small and nimble and local level. And we're trying to cement them into these much bigger infrastructures. I'll give you an example from sustainable investing that is really top of mind for me right now. And I I think potentially, you know, existentially troubling. So we've got giant financial system, big power of money flow in the world, and a lot of positive potential if we can redirect investing towards more beneficial outcomes on all sorts of different dimensions. Um, But what is the first thing we want to do if we want to influence that system? We set up some standardized metrics uh, and then we sort things high to low and we set a very clear kind of binary indicator for this is good, this is bad, this is acceptable, this is not, this is the threshold, uh, you know, above or below which uh, we characterize your activity as worthy. That type of design description is almost a complete mismatch with the function that we're trying to perform. So if you are really trying to influence, for example, a transition to more renewable energy, the last thing you want to do is take a single backward looking point in time metric, sort from high to low and divest from all the high numbers on that list. It leaves you with a bunch of stranded assets. It leaves uh, the most problematic assets in the least capable hands for migrating them in an effective way. And it really distorts uh, in the meantime valuation for the up and coming solutions that need to be more affordable in order to take off, right? So you've got this really strong, well thought through intentions and then a total mismatch of the metrics that go along with that intention. So I think this question of matching design with function is something that my biomimicry studies and my work with SFI over the years has really helped me to home in on. And my personal, you know, I'll, I'll share it with the world now. My, my little like nefarious Trojan horse is that every time I'm asked to comment on standards, whether it's regulatory standards or disclosure standards or something else, I just work in the words like, appropriate or adaptable or evolving, (laughs) like anything that I can get into the um, commentary that implies that this is a changing thing that is going to be iterative over time. seems very small, but actually is gigantic when you look at the potential difference that an adaptive system could make, even on the simplest metrics in the world versus one that is frozen. But we like frozen. It gets back to that question of certainty. It's false certainty, but it doesn't matter that it's false. It's still certain. And it, many of us would choose false certainty over real risk. Well, another shout out to Brian Arthur, because I'll be interviewing him soon about his recent essay on economics and nouns and verbs. That's sort of been lurking over this whole conversation about you know, his argument that 
modeling everything in an algebraic equation means that you've specified all the variables. And that's not what economies do. They're endogenous novelty generators. So thinking about it more in terms of a recipe rather than yes. a you know a, a concrete prescription. You know, I really appreciated how much attention you gave to design and form and function and you know this kind of approach. You make a statement on page 121 for people reading the hardcover. Resilience is about maintaining function in light of disturbance, not retaining form. Yeah. And you know this uh, this rings when I hit the bell of the shift that's going on in conservation biology and ecology right now about what you elsewhere in this book describe as a shift from preservation to renewal. Mm-hmm. You know, and an attention to meaningful diversity rather than the charismatic species that were, you know, it's it's not about the panda. I'm sorry. It's <laughs> it's it's about what pandas do. And so in a weird way, you know, this opens us up into an inquiry more suited to Harvard Divinity School Catherine Collins, which is about, you know, the questions that are left with us when we move into the 21st century, you know, which is the century of complex system science. And you got papers coming out like the utter banger, the information theory of individuality, which reframes our own identity as organisms in terms of the mutual information we exchange with our environments or with our own past and future states and brings us into something more like Alfred North Whitehead's process philosophy. You know, so when you start thinking about yourself and when you start thinking about economic instruments as strategies and you know your own funds that you create and their their values like what comes up for you in this epistemic shift from the known quantity from the risk to the uncertain you know from the noun to the verb you know you you talk about making the shift from static to dynamic here mm-hmm. and like that's that's kind of where I'd like to end it because that feels like an inspiring thing for all of us who are cast about on the waves of change right now and you know struggling amidst the turbulence of this time. You know, where do you find inspiration as a private individual, as an investor, as a leader in the sort of phase transition that we're, you know, <laughs> the ever more <laughs> fluid identity that we now seem to have to inhabit? For sure. Well, I don't think any of us having lived through this past year can legitimately cling to a true sense of control anymore, right? So one way or the other, we, we've all felt put upon, you know, <laughs> we've been forced to realize whether it's welcome or not, that there are a whole lot of things in the world that we don't have a choice about in some ways and at, at some level. I think that the dark side of that experience is if you follow down that path too far and without reflection, you start to feel like you have no choice about anything, you know, and things are just going to be done to you and circumstances are going to arise. And that's a terrible kind of helpless feeling. One really important element of my studies in divinity school and really gets to the root of, you know, philosophy, ministry, religion, all of it is um, the notion of agency. Um, and the idea that regardless of the circumstances, you know, in, in East of Eden, it's one of my favorite novels, there's this word that is um, puzzled over for a really good chunk of the book called Tim Shell. Uh, and there's this debate, you know, amongst all these different characters and scholars involved in the book, what does this word really mean? And the, the debate is what the interpretation of this ancient word is. And in the end, the decision is that the word means thou mayest. So it's it's this notion of free will that regardless of the circumstances, there is this kernel of volition and agency that still remains. You know, how you respond to those circumstances still at some level, no matter how small, is within your control. So that's kind of the extreme version. But this notion of agency, I think, is the key to everything we've been talking about, which is inherently a little bit anxious at times, but full of potential. It's the key to all of that coming together in a positive way. So I try to kind of recenter on this question for my work, but really also my life. Very simple question, but it's it's what can you uniquely add to this situation? And you know, there's not always an obvious answer. Sometimes I'm more self-aware than other times, so you don't always know what you can uniquely add. But to be asking that question instead of saying, what do other people expect of me? What doors have been closed to me? Um, how can I fit through you know, this really narrow recipe for success that's been put in front of me to flip that around 
and ask this more open-ended question of what could I do that would be truly additive, that no one but me could contribute to this, ideally. I ask the same question of company CEOs. You know, when they meet with a lot of sustainability-oriented investors, they go through this big, long report card, you know, 100 pages long, and 80 pages of it is irrelevant, and 20 pages is highly critical. And by the end, they're just like, you know what? ESG, I don't want to hear about it, you know? Um, But if you flip around that report card version and instead ask someone who's leading an organization, which by definition is unique compared to all other organizations in one way or another, what's the coolest thing you could do? Like, you know your company better than anyone else. You know your people, you know your products, you know your community, you know your customers. What is the most amazing thing that you could contribute to the world right now? I mean, that's a little out there for a question. It's a little bit Pollyannish, but oh my gosh, you'd be amazed at the answers you get. It's totally different than that report card kind of conversation. And I find that for a lot of us, our inner monologue, is the report card monologue. You know, I'm points off for this, points off for this, I'm not enough this, I'm too much that. You know, if you're not in that category, lucky you. But uh, for a lot of us, there's sort of this inner report card that whether we're conscious of it or not, we're comparing against. We flip that around and ask that question about potential, like, oh my gosh, the things that would be possible. So that's what I see. Again, it's, it's a reason I keep showing up SFI, one researcher after another. I, every time I meet someone, I'm like, oh my gosh, no one else could have done this research that you just did. Like you needed this combination of like people and ideas and background all to come together. And this is a piece of research I could not find anywhere else on the planet. Like that is additive. Um, and, you know, may or may not get lots of external accolades for any one publication, but that is what the world needs. And so when we talk about things like inclusion, that's why it's important. It's not that I just want more people assembled. It's not just that I want more ideas. I want all of the additive qualities to come together. And so it it links to the metrics we talked about. It links to the systems we talked about. It links to all the challenges we talked about. The flip side of that challenge is that those ingredients are there. You just need to ask a different question. That feels like a satisfying place to end this. Catherine, thank you so much for being on the show. That was really fun. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you for listening. Complexity is produced by the Santa Fe Institute, a nonprofit hub for complex system science located in the high desert of New Mexico. For more information, including transcripts, research links, and educational resources, or to support our science and communication efforts, visit santafe.edu slash podcast.